Hey, we're glad you're here with us today. We're in a series called Make Love Work, and we're working through our way through the book Song of Solomon. And this book is almost a 3,000-year-old document written by a guy named Solomon, and he literally wrote a 1,000-plus songs, and this is the one he said was his best one. There's so much wisdom in this book. Even though it's 3,000 years old, you read it and you go, if you understand it, you go, oh, wow. There's so much that I can learn. There's so much I can apply. There's so much I can do, and I hope you're feeling that and experiencing that. We live in a new day. We live in a different culture than the world has ever known. We live in a, in a, and it's a new situation. And part of what you saw represented in that video is very real for so many couples today. And part of it is this. I read, a, I read an article a couple years ago. It was a long-term study done of men today. Now, ladies, sit back because it's not just about men, but it was talking about the modern man and how the modern man today is burdened in a way, burdened in a way that no man has been in American history, perhaps the history of the world. If you go back just a couple generations, men had primary responsibilities in the home of working, making money, providing. But nowadays, because so many women work outside the home, that men feel the extra burden of being at kids' schooling events and helping with more chores around the house than ever before, changing diapers, which I know some of you are like, yeah, he better. I do. I changed diapers in my home. I outchanged my wife this weekend. I'm not sure I'm proud of that. But anyway... It's a reality. Now, is it good or bad? It's nothing. It's neither this nor that. If you go to different cultures in the world, they're all different. God doesn't say women need to stay in the home. That is, while that is impressed upon people today, that is not what the Bible teaches. My mom worked outside the home almost my entire life. You may argue I didn't turn out okay. I'd like to argue at least I turned out all right. The point isn't that we should go back a couple generations and all of a sudden women should only stay at home. The point is it's a new day. And because of that, many families today are grasping for wisdom. They're looking for places to turn to and say, help me navigate how to parent. Help me navigate how to love my spouse. Help me navigate how to get married one day and be successful because everything's different. And so if you go back a few generations and read books, the wisdom kind of applies, but it kind of doesn't. But if you come back to the wisdom in this book, the Bible, the wisdom always applies. Here's some proof. Now, what I want to do right now is I'm going to give you just four quick, four quick statistics. I hate statistics. I believe that 70% of statistics are made up on the spot. Okay, you got it now. All right. However, these stats come right from a, a guy named Tommy Nelson who wrote a book called The Book of Love on the Songs of Solomon. And I want you to see these, and the reason I want you to see these is because there's wisdom in the statistics. Here's what everybody does. Everybody assumes they beat the odds. Most of us are willing to go to Vegas and put our whole retirement on two black or whatever it is because you think, no, 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 I realize all the odds are stacked in the house's favor, but I will be the one who breaks the odds until you come back broke. And then you find out everything that happened in Vegas didn't stay in Vegas. Well, your money, I guess, happened in Vegas and stayed in Vegas, but it's just not like that. So here's a statistic. I want you to hear this because this applies to a whole bunch of you in this room. Hear this. 80%. 80% of the relationships in which couples were living together without marriage vows end in separation. Now, our culture today says you should try before you buy. You should live together and see if you can make it work first because if you can't, then you can walk away. Except for the odds are telling you that doing it like this is actually setting you up to fail, not to succeed. Every time I use that stat in a message like this, I get immediate phone calls from couples living together saying, can you help us? What do we do next? If that's your story, reach out for help. Here's one thing I would say, you need to move out. 
Now, for some of you, and I don't have time, this isn't my sermon today. Some of you, I realize it's very complex because you have kids together. And in your situation, we probably need to talk about some very specific steps towards getting you married and right before God so that he can bless your marriage. Let's talk about that. But if you're messing around and dating and living together and you are not married and you're not even on track to get married, man, get out of each other's home. You're like, how are we going to afford this? I don't know. But if you want God to bless it, men, if you want God to bless it, I'll show you this throughout the sermon. I want you to step up and take the lead. Go get a second job, a third job, a fourth job, sell blood. I don't care what you got to sell. Figure it out. Here's another statistic. And again, everybody thinks they're, just, they're not part of this. But 60% of those who are married by a justice of the peace are divorced later. 60%. So there's a better odds if you go with a minister or pastor. I'll show you this in a minute. You're better off. Just that alone. Well, why? Well, there's probably a lot of reasons why. But for one, a justice of the peace. Now, he might be a Christian. That's fine. But he's not there representing God. See, in a normal wedding, when I stand up and I say, marriage <laughs> is what brings us together. Like, at least 10% of the room went, what is he doing right now? It's called culture, people. Top 10 movie of all time. All right. When I stand up and I say, dearly beloved, I don't actually say that. But whatever it is you say. When I'm gathered in the moment, I'm representing God as the minister, the pastor on stage, and the, the, the groom and the bride are there, and her families are there, his family's there, and their friends are there, and we'll dig more into this in a moment, but I'm representing God in that moment. And if you take God out of the picture and you insert, no matter how good of a man or a good of a woman that person is, they are no longer representing God. So when you go into marriage, you're making a covenant, not a contract. And a contract says, I'm in, as long as you do what you're supposed to do. And if you don't do what you're supposed to do, I'm out. A covenant says we stand before God and we say for better or for worse, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health. When I do weddings, and I don't get to do very many today, but when I do them, I don't let the couples write their own vows. Usually what I tell them is we can insert any kind of letter, statement, promise you want to make to each other, but you will do it this. Because this is from God. Now, it's not literally quoted scripture when you say those things. It's quoting what the scripture teaches us. When you stand on that stage and the woman says to the man, the man says to the woman, I do. It's supposed to be until death. That doesn't mean you get to kill them the first time they drive you crazy, <laughs> though you will be tempted. It just means that you're making a commitment to God that no matter what, God, I'm going to trust you to get me through. Here's another stat. 40%, 40% of those who are married in churches eventually divorce. So the odds are at least in your favor if you get married in a church, but 40% is far too high. Let me just touch real quick on this one. Many of you in this room, many of you in this room have been divorced, and this is not the end of your story. God's grace is sufficient for you. He can both forgive you and heal you and help you. This is not the end of your story. Divorce is horrible and painful and it separates and causes all kinds of chaos. It is not the end of your story. Don't let Satan tell you it is. And in a series like this, for those of you who are widowed, widowers, and for those of you who are divorced, this can be a very painful, painful series. I don't intend to hurt anybody, but we will go everywhere the Bible goes, and so the Bible goes here, so we go there. But now let me show you one more stat, and this is mind-boggling. Those who read their Bibles together daily divorce only at the rate of one out of 1,050. Okay, so when I read that, you know what that made me want to do? 
figure out how to start reading the Bible with my wife. Our schedules are so crazy and hectic and chaotic, we don't sit down and read it together, but boy, did that motivate me because I want to be with this woman the rest of my life. There are days, but for the most part, (laughs) I want to be with this woman the rest of my life. I want to be with her. Now, you may say that's crazy. How could that even happen? And let me tell you the answer. It is very simple, but it's very hard. It's because this book, the Bible, it exposes you over and over and over again. Man, as we're going through this series, I hate it and I love it. Man, I bought my wife flowers last week. First time in six months. If you were here last week, you knew that. This book keeps exposing me all the ways that I don't measure up as a dad, as a father, as a man. And then what it does in beautiful glory is it shows me my failure and my weakness. And then in grace, God says, but I love you and I'm not done with you. So God leads me from my place of struggle and failure in through his grace into having the strength to become all that he sees me becoming. And that's your story too. So now let's dig into the book, Songs of Solomon. Today, there's going to be a ton of me, and I just got to warn you, okay, grace up front. There's grace in the Bible, okay? Men, you need to put on your seatbelt because I'm taking the two by four out today, and you're getting whacked. But ladies, I'm going to say two or three things that you are not going to like. You're going you're to go, yeah, get him, preacher. And then I'm going to say something like, whoa. All right, I'm just warning you, grace. Get to the end, get to the end before you judge if you're visiting with us today. Song of Solomon, chapter three, we're gonna pick up at verse six. We're only going to verse 11, and here's why, because next week, we pick up at the honeymoon. So, real quick, warning, warning. Next week is a PG-13 sermon. I will handle it with grace, but I will go everywhere the text goes. They go in detail to the honeymoon nights, and then they stop right before they consummate the marriage, if you don't know what that means. They stop right before, and... um, it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. We will go there. We will go there next week. So you, you want to choose. I would guess seventh grade and up. You might even go as young as fifth grade, but we will have programming available ready to help you out for up through sixth grade next week. So just be ready. In the book, Song of Solomon, so far we have a couple they met, they fell in love, they started to grow the relationship, they've been dating, courting, and now we find them at the wedding day. Here's what we pick up in chapter three, verse six. Who is this sweeping in from the wilderness like a cloud of smoke? Who is it fragrant with myrrh and frankincense and every kind of spice? This is a beautiful passage. Now, this sets the context for these next six verses. We don't exactly know whether we're talking about Solomon or the Shulamite girl. There's the two main characters, the man and the woman, Solomon and the Shulamite girl. We're not 100% sure which one we're talking about. It's most likely, it's most likely Solomon describing his bride. So Solomon is now at the wedding moment and he looks out over the hills and he sees his bride riding down towards him and he says this, who is this? And he's he's like talking, it's poetic. And he looks and he says, oh, she's fragrant with myrrh and frankincense. Part of the reason we believe it's Solomon describing his bride and not just Solomon describing Solomon, that's the other option, is because if you go back, if you remember kind of where we ended that first message, she had this necklace on and it had a a little goblet or something that hung between between her on her chest, we'll put it that way, and um, it was full of sweet-smelling spices like frankincense and myrrh. So he's looking out, and she is adorned for the wedding day. How many of you have been married remember that moment? I'll never forget. We had a very chaotic morning, the, the morning of our wedding. Uh, I was running late. Some of my guys uh, got in late the night before to get to try on their stuff before the wedding. 
And so I ran around that morning, literally driving to different stores, trying to get stuff so that our wedding could happen. And these guys didn't have to not wear a shirt, that kind of thing. I was a little frustrated, but when I showed up late, my wife was even more frustrated. I've told the story before. She thought I ditched because my family showed up late too. She thought I was a runaway groom and uh, that didn't go over well. But anyway, I showed up, we did all these pictures. I got to see the groomsmen and the bridesmaids and her family and my family. We took all the pictures separately, but the only person I didn't get to see was her. And I realize everybody does it different. There's no biblical motif. You have to do it this way. But then when I'm standing at the altar, my knees are shaking, I'm anxious, literally sick to my stomach, and the door opened. And there was my wife wearing white, beautiful from head to toe. She'd spent all day. She will never be as beautiful as she was that day. And that's not a knock. It's a compliment. She looked stunning. And I was like, are we done with this wedding yet? Next Sunday, (laughs) I couldn't wait for her to come down the aisle and to say, I do. And this is what Solomon is describing. He looks out, who is that beautiful woman? And it's going to be his wife. And she's going to smell fantastic. He's describing for you what he is putting together in this whole thing. Look at what happens next. And this is huge. This is huge for today. Verse 7 and 8. Look, it's Solomon's carriage. The actual word there uh, really defines a bed. Now, don't misunderstand that. That has nothing to do with what comes in the next chapter. He's not being at all pointing to the honeymoon. He's just saying he's a king, and she is traveling, traveling in opulence. Here comes the carriage. And I lost my spot. Seven, there we go. Surrounded by 60 heroic men, the best of Israel's soldiers. They are all skilled swordsmen, experienced warriors. Each wears a sword on his thigh, ready to defend the king against an attack in the night. And you're like, what in the weird kind of world is a wedding is this? Now, picture this. He's the king. And she was a country girl. So here she comes riding in, probably out of the country. He says that there in verse six, out of the wilderness. He's joining, she's joining him in Jerusalem at the city where he is located. And there is a strong statement here. He went out of his way to make sure that she was both in comfort, she's in his carriage, but also secure. That wisdom right there, men, for you, is pretty much all you need to know about marriage. Does the woman you want to spend the rest of your life with feel safe in your presence? Does she feel tenderly cared for? Or does she feel afraid? These men, the 60 men, if they are, and it doesn't say specifically, but it's very possible these are the mighty men of valor. Solomon's dad, David, had 30 mighty men, and these were, I mean, they were the baddest dudes of the day, period. They tell a few of their stories. It's amazing. And like Samuel, 2 Samuel, oh, it's amazing. Like just a few of these guys, like three of these guys go into the Philistine camp at one point, fight off an entire Philistine army, two of them, while one of them gathers water from a well in order to bring David a drink. I mean, these are, these are, and I don't mean to offend anybody if I'm into the wrong ones, but these are the army rangers. These are the Navy SEALs. I don't mean to leave out anybody else who's a bad dude in our, in our special forces. These are the best of the best of the best. And not only does he have, David had 30 val- valious men, whatever that word is, is that a word, valious? He had a war, 30 of them. Solomon has 60 surrounding his bride on this day. He is going out of his way to make sure she feels safe. Now, did this literally happened, probably. But this is more than just the literal, this is the metaphoric. Does your bride or bride-to-be feel safe 
with you. Here's a good question. Why do women not feel safe with men? You ever stop to ask that, guys? How about the countless, countless number of men who have used their hands to hurt and abuse and attack and rape? And I get it, it might not have been you. It might not have even been your bride or your girlfriend, but it's so prevalent in society and in the world that are you at all surprised that they feel unsafe? If we were to go further back, this goes really deep. Now, this is where I start to get on the guys a little, but girls, there's some wisdom for you in this, okay? So if we go all the way back to the very beginning, God created Adam and he created Eve. When God created Adam, Genesis chapter two, he had already created the animals and the birds and the fish and he put Adam in the garden and God immediately said, this is not good, it is not right for man to be alone. There's a whole sermon on the Trinity in that. God has never been alone. A little, little side note here, God cannot be loving if he has ever been alone. If God spent at some point centuries or even days by himself before he had anybody else love, then he cannot be loving because at some point he wasn't loving. It's an opposite. It doesn't work. God has always been loving because Father, Son, Holy Spirit has always been in a relationship. So in the very beginning, Genesis 1, when God said to himself, he said, let us, who's he talking to? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Let us make man in our image. God never intended to create an Adam without an Eve, never, but he did at first create an Adam before an Eve. And then we find out God says, this isn't good. In fact, everything to this point has been good. He creates sun and moon and stars, he creates planets, he creates everything else. I don't even care how long you think it took. He creates all and he goes, this is good, this is good, this is good, this is good, this is very good. My creation is awesome. Then he creates Adam and he's alone. He says, this isn't good. But he doesn't do anything about it yet. And he sends Adam on a little journey. And he says, Adam, I want you to name all the animals and the birds and the fish or whatever. We don't even know exactly how long it took. We don't even exactly know what all Adam named. But I want you to name them. And as Adam names them all, this is like an honor. Adam was created to work. However, Adam gets lonely because he realizes if all he does is work, life isn't very fulfilling. And so Adam goes to her and he goes, man, this male lion has a female lion. This male giraffe has a female giraffe. This male whatever all the animals he named are. And at the end, Adam becomes depressed because he becomes alone. And then God says, great, now you're right where I want you. And it says God put Adam into a deep sleep and he reached in and he pulled a rib out of Adam and he made Eve. And Adam woke up and he said, whoa, man, that is awesome. <laughs> I didn't make that one up. And the Bible says over and over and over and over and over and over again in those first few chapters, they were naked and unashamed. They were naked and unashamed. They were naked and unashamed. He gazed at her nakedness and saw beauty and there was nothing perverted about it. Now, this is huge because when Adam wakes up and he sings a song of love, he literally, it's a poem, and he looks at her, he says, this one is bone from my bone, flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. The whole idea here is not about ownership. It's not about possession. It's not about control. It's not about a power or authority. The whole point here is the two, two separate beings are one being. And the way God made it is Adam knew he was lonely. He needed something. So God in his infinite love, he wanted Adam to be like God. Let's make man in our own image. So he knew Adam needed a counterpart. Now, real quick pause. I'm going to do 30 seconds. It is totally biblical, God-honoring, and acceptable for you to be single. 
You need to know that, some of you. If you're widowed or widower, if you've never been married, you're divorced. Jesus literally says at one point, he uses the analogy of eunuchs, and a eunuch was somebody who was physically altered. I'll put it that way, kiss your kids in the room. They were physically altered and they did not marry. And Jesus says, some of you will be born eunuchs, so some of you will choose never to get married. Some of you will choose to be eunuchs for the kingdom of God. So some of you will choose never to get married to honor God. And some of you will be made eunuchs by others. And there's a lot of ways that that could happen. I say this because it is totally God honoring to be single. But we're in a series in the book, Songs of Solomon. So let's come back to Adam and Eve. And in this book, we learn that, that God made Eve for Adam. She was a helper specifically designed for him. Have you noticed that the woman got put in your life, man, was just like amazing how she is exactly what you're not? Does that ever amaze you? And it'll drive you nuts because of all the things you want to do and accomplish and be and all the things. She doesn't necessarily want those things. This is called sin. And see, that came into the story in Genesis chapter three. And if you don't know the story, I don't have time to go into it in great detail, but as God created this beautiful garden, literally he says, guys, you can do anything you want in this garden, do whatever you want. Eat, be fruitful, multiply, enjoy each other, literally. And then he said, but there's this one tree and I want you to stay away from it. And we don't know what kind of tree it was. I don't want to guess whether it was apples. I think it was a watermelon tree, personally. (laughs) Why not? It's, It's the garden. But anyway, Eve walks by, and one day Satan shows up and says, hey, Eve, you should eat this tree. She says, no, God said we shouldn't eat of it. And he says, is that really what he said? See, God's trying to keep something from you. Isn't that how every temptation in your life goes? God's trying to keep you from experiencing something. So experience it. You'll be happy. You'll be healthy. You'll be whole. But God says, don't go there. But I know more than God, so I'll go there. And Eve takes the fruit, and she eats. And her eyes are opened, it says. And then she took the fruit and she gave it to Adam. And the way the text reads, he's there. She didn't have to run around the garden looking for him. He's there. And so we learn that Adam double sinned. First, he took the fruit from his bride when God said clearly, do not take the fruit. But second of all, he didn't protect his bride. He blew it. She needed him in that moment to step in and say, get behind us. Leave my bride alone. So is it any surprise in Genesis chapter three when God shows up and starts pronouncing these curses and I believe the curses are more like pronouncements of what's going to happen and what is more than it is anything God's saying, well, I'm going to punish you now. He's just making statements and look what he says in Genesis chapter three, verse 16. Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain. We have this up there. I'm waiting on them. Put it up there. Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. So first thing he says, ladies, it's going to stink to give birth, and I got to tell you, I've never been there, but I've watched it. My wife got an epidural. It didn't work. They kept trying to fix it. It didn't work. The guy was going to come in and and like take it out and redo the whole thing, and at the same moment, the doctor said, nope, it's too late. My poor wife. Man, I personally think it's worse what she went through because she was expecting no pain and she got all pain. Not fun. However, the second part, I want you to see this. So ladies, now because of your rebellion and your sin, you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And men for thousands of years since this was pronounced have been abusing their leadership. And ladies... 
You've been trying to take over. And didn't this just describe your marriage in 101? Is not every fight going on in your marriage related somehow to the selfishness of a man not caring for, tenderly protecting his wife like Solomon did his bride? Or and or the wife desperately trying to take over control and believing she can do it better than her husband? It just got real personal in here, didn't it? This would be a good time, men, to gently and tenderly reach over and grab your wife's hand and whisper to her, I love you. Some of you were smart enough to actually do it. <laughs> I heard it. Listen, I realize this is not a popular message, and where I'm going the rest of the time won't be either, but if you'll give me just a few more moments of your attention, I'll tell you what to do about this. Let's come back to Songs of Solomon now. Chapter 3. Verse 9. King Solomon's carriage is built of wood imported from Lebanon. Its posts are silver, its canopy gold, its cushions are purple. I want to stop there before I read the last part of that. What he's describing now is this beautiful thing that he's made for her. It's absolutely fantastic. The, the cedars, the wood of Lebanon is still sought after today. It's this really highly respected wood. It's talked about throughout the Old Testament. There's these reference to the cedars of Lebanon. Just absolutely beautiful, very, 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 very high quality wood. Everybody wants it. So Solomon goes all in. Silver posts and gold here and purple. Purple was not easy to come by in that day. It was very rare and hard to get. What do we learn from that? Well, first of all, what we learn from that is, yes, Solomon's a king, but bigger than that. Let's apply this to everybody. Solomon is well prepared for this day. Men, way too many young men today are obsessed with video games and living in their parents' basement and they have debt coming out their ears because they can't stop buying boy toys. Men, especially some of you young men who long to be married one day, I'm crying out to you, I'm begging you. You know what, if you're in a season... Stay in your parents' basement. Go get a second job or a third job or a tenth job. I don't care how many you have to get. Make a ton of money. Pay off all your debt. Save some money so that your bride one day will feel cared for in your care. I remember Dave Ramsey. I don't remember which book it was, but he talked about when he went bankrupt and how much insecurity that created in his wife. Could she trust him to provide? Solomon's going out of his way to let her know, yes, you can trust me, I will provide. So I'm not only providing physical security, you're not only safe when you're with me, but I am going to take care of you in every way. And all ladies in the room are like, preach it. What would happen if the men in this room would stand up and say, I'm going to do that for you? Now, he notice here, he begins to beckon to the ladies of Jerusalem. It was decorated with love by the young women of Jerusalem. They become relevant in the next verse, but let's hang here for a second. See, what's going on here is while his men and his craftsmen did the handiwork, the hard work, the, the crafting and the building, the ladies came in and put the nice female touch on it. And every guy in the room knows exactly what that feels like, right? And so the ladies came in and they kind of dressed this thing up. What's huge here is, and I just want to say this, for those of you who have not yet been married, or you're going to be married one day, who you bring to your wedding is really, really important. Realize you're not just bringing people to your wedding to celebrate. You're bringing people to your wedding to witness the day. This is why usually the pastor stands up, makes some sort of address to everybody there, the dearly beloved statement. We are gathered here today. It's not just a, yes, come and celebrate. Yes, we are celebrating, but it's a, it's a statement of accountability. Those groomsmen, those bridesmaids, the family and friends who are present are all supposed to be godly men and women who one day can speak into your life. When you're acting like a, a bonehead, men, 
and you're not treating her with tender care, and you're not caring for your family, and you're not being what Solomon is calling you to be, the guys in your group, they ought to be able to come to you and say, dude, get it together. They shouldn't be the yes men who when you go to them and you vent about your bride, like, man, she's this, and she's doing that, and she's changed. They, instead of being the ones who go, yeah, you ought to dump her, they ought to be the ones going to you and saying, suck it up, for better or for worse, rich or poor. I was there. I heard you. And ladies, same thing. Your friends, the women of Jerusalem at your wedding, they ought to be people that when you go to them and you're frustrated, because by the way, you will be one day, they're the ones who speak to you and say, you know what, I was there. For better or for worse, for rich or poor, sickness and in health, till death do you part. Go love that man. Look at the next verse. Solomon beckons to these young ladies, come out to see King Solomon, young women of Jerusalem. In other words, be a witness here. And then he ends with this huge, he wears the crown his mother gave him on his wedding day, his most joyous day. And it truly is, right? It's an amazing day. But notice, there's a key figure noted here. Who is it? His mama. Now, I don't get it. I'm a, I'm a son. There's a special bond between my mom and I. My sister and my mom are like close friends. They talk all the time. It's, I don't, it's, and it's not some weird Ray Romano kind of thing. It's not. Because my mom and my wife are really, really close. My mom and my wife talk more than my mom and I talk. More than my wife and I talk, maybe. They have a fantastic relationship. But there's just something special about my relationship with my mom and I. And she'll tell you. She's probably watching this online right now. Hi, mom. She'll tell you that. And what this means, men, is if your mom doesn't approve, you probably shouldn't be at that day. And ladies, if you haven't gone and won over his mama, you might want to work harder. Solomon thinks very highly of his mom, and she approves, and she gives him a crown special for that day. She's passed the test. Now, let's come full circle. What does all this mean? The way God created marriage, and this is going back to the Bible stuff, I know it's hard for all of us to hear, but you've got to stick with me, ladies. Please stick with me. Don't judge what I'm about to say until I finish it. The way God created marriage, one man, one woman, and they were supposed to be in a beautiful, united relationship. He was supposed to be the strong leader in his home who would care for tenderly all of her needs. She would come alongside him and help in all the things that he needed help with. That's not a knock. That's not a slam. It's a beautiful gift. And when men lead forward, it does amazing things. I put a quote on a Facebook this week of a, a person who was a counselor for 38 years. And this counselor noted that in all their counseling with married couples, the struggles came from the wives being frustrated with their husbands because when the husbands go to work, he's confident, he leads, he makes decisions, he works hard, he's creative, and then he comes home and he's passive, he can't make a decision, he doesn't know what to do in anything, and he doesn't express any creativity towards a relationship. And this has been me. My wife has come to me more times than I can count and say, how is it, Matt? You can plan events for 200 teenagers plus adults and get the details nailed down, but when it comes to date night, you're like, so what do you want to do tonight, babe? Ugh, that hurts. Because she's so right. Matt, how can you stand up and know exactly what to say in front of thousands of people and then we have a fight and it's like all of it goes out the window? And she's right. God created marriage for the men to be strong, confident, tender, 
compassionate, patient, loving men. So men, do the women in your lives, can they trust you? Do you ever threaten with physical violence? No, come on, you don't actually have to say, I'll hit you, but do you ever just raise your hand? Do you ever make physical moves towards them in a way that intimidates them to put them in their place again? Have you ever actually hit or threatened? For some of you, yes. For some of you, no. But are you passive? Have you swung the pendulum the opposite way? Instead of being you know, abusive, you've been just passive, sitting by, letting whatever I be, whatever is. Meanwhile, your bride is wasting away, just dying for you to step up and love her the way you once did. I know this hurts some of it. So now let's get into what the Bible says again. Here's how Peter addresses these issues. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 5. We're going to start with the ladies. And ladies, again, I'm asking for your grace here because there's a ton of wisdom for you. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 5. Peter says this. This is how the holy women of old made themselves beautiful. They put their trust in God and accepted the authority of their husbands. And I realize this right here makes a whole bunch of you never want to come back again. But it's the word of God, so I have to tell it to you. Now, let's just pack this for a second. Peter's been on a rant here. He's been going on for a while now about the holiness in the church. And he says this, you, all of you who love Jesus, you don't love Jesus, you're off the hook. All of you who love Jesus, you should be holy as God is holy. In other words, you should be seeking to be like him in this world. The word holy literally just means set apart. So you don't think like the world thinks, you don't act like the world acts, you don't do what the world does, you don't speak like the world speaks, you should be separate. And then he's getting into specific applications and he talks about slaves and husbands and wives and unbelievers and believers, a whole thing about how we should do it all. And here he says, women, if you wanna be holy, then here's what you do. Don't worry about adorning yourselves, don't worry about just looking great, worry about your heart. Trust God. Allow your husband to lead in the home. How can I let him lead in my home? He's not been trustworthy. He's been abusive. My uncle, my grandfather, my whatever, my dad. And Peter's point is trust God, ladies. Trust God. And then he says, verse 6. For instance, Sarah obeyed her husband, Abraham, and called him her master. You are her daughters when you do what is right without fear of what your husbands might do. Here's what Peter is saying in a nutshell. And again, this is a whole sermon itself, and I'm just using it as an illustration. Here's what Peter is saying in a nutshell. Ladies, do whatever God is calling you to do and don't stress about what he does. Now, here's what I'm not talking about, neither is Peter. If your husband is literally hitting you or raping you, you call 911. You call sheltering wings. That is unacceptable, and the Bible would never teach you to stay in that environment. You go call your dad, and if he has a shotgun, I'm just kidding, I'm not encouraging that. <laughs> but if he is literally, literally abusing you, get out. Get to a safe place. Try to get him some help. Now, here's what he's saying to the rest of us. Ladies, ladies, I know it's hard to trust. It's hard to trust because we've not always, men have not always been good with the authority, the responsibility, the leadership God has given us. And I'm begging you, do the right thing anyway. Not because it's easy, but because God will equip you through faith to do exactly what you need to do. He's a good, good father. I just want you to remember that. But now men, verse seven, 
In the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should so your prayers will not be hindered. Let's just talk about this for a second. There's a whole bunch here. It's like, again, a whole sermon right here. But husbands, give honor to your wives. You know what that means? You never, ever, ever say a bad word about her in front of anybody else, period. Early in my marriage, I didn't get this. And my wife and I would be in mixed company with friends, and I would tell a little joke, something that would supposed to be teasing her publicly, let's just say I learned the hard way that doesn't go over well. Now, God convicted me later and said, this is not wise. This is not showing uh, honor to your bride. Look at the way Solomon talks about Shulamith over and over and over again. He keeps going to her insecurities and building them up. He doesn't expose them. He doesn't make fun of them. He doesn't mock them. And he certainly doesn't tease her to other people. When you're honoring your wife, always use your words to build her up. Now, think about this for a minute. Imagine everybody thinking that you have the perfect wife because all you ever talk about is how amazing she is. Would that be such a bad thing? Think about how she would feel. One of the books I read uh, by Dr. David Jeremiah, recommended it last week, fantastic book, but he tells a story about this man, again, totally a foreign country, but about this man. And in that country, the men had to buy their wives from her dad. And so uh, the, the typical price for a wife was somewhere around three or four cows for an average woman and seven cows for a great woman. I re- okay, I get it. it. It's not a perfect illustration, but stick with me here. Now, this man fell in love with a woman, but this man was an entrepreneur. He was a business owner. He was young, but he was very successful and very wealthy already. The going rate for the kind of woman that he fell in love with was about three to four cows, and everybody knew that she was an average woman. So he goes to dad to ask for her ability, the ability to marry her, and he starts the bidding out at eight cows. Eight. The dad took it. And this lady who did the original thing wanted to interview him and find out why, and the story was told in this book, and she goes to him and she says, why in the world, why in the world would you pay eight cows for her? The first thing she noticed is that his bride was going around the house smiling, going out of her way to serve her now husband. And he said, it was very simple. When the ladies are hanging around in the public talking to each other and they start to share how many cows they paid for each other, what happens to the lady who says, my husband paid three or four cows to me, for me? Now think about that. Think about the wisdom in that, men. Does your wife privately know how special she is to you? Does she know that among all the other women out there, you would have paid eight cows? Okay, maybe that's not perfect analogy but can she tell stories about you can she brag to her friends man he loves me how do you know because he did then he said and you know what I'm not even overly stressed about what the other ladies think about her I want her to know how I see her she's an eight cow girl to me (laughs) (laughs) nothing says love like that Okay, this whole weaker thing, again, I wish I had more time to unpack this. It's just not the total point today. She's clearly physically not as strong as you. Okay, there are exceptions to the rule. Whoever Ronda Rousey marries, she probably, this won't apply, okay? But on the whole, man, you're stronger. So treat your ladies. The phrase here is actually delicate, petite. That's the kind of understanding in this Greek word. She is like fine china. So treat her like that. You don't abuse it. You don't ever use it. You treat it as if it's very, very, very important. 
The other part here, that go, and this is popular, ladies, I realize that, but the other part of this is Eve sinned first and then Adam sinned and Adam failed because he didn't protect Eve spiritually. Men, part of the implication of what Peter's saying here is, men, your job is to protect your brides physically and spiritually. Now, I get it. Somebody, here's what men say to me. I'm not ready. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what to do with this book. You know what? You don't know what to do when your car breaks. You go figure it out. When the plumbing in the house breaks, you go figure it out. You may call an expert. You may go online. You may read a book. But don't you figure it out? Figure it out. There's more books, more resources, more sermons, more content today on the Bible than at any other point in all of human history combined. Not to count the fact that you have the Holy Spirit living inside you. You don't know what to do? Figure it out. Go talk to a guy who's already doing it and say, dude, what are you doing? How do you do it? Can you teach me? Because I guarantee you God will grow you and your marriage will grow. And one out of 1,050, you want to save your marriage? Get it right with God. Let's kind of go to the next verses. Here's what I want to do. Oh, 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 I can't miss this. I'm sorry. Don't go on next. Treat her as you should so your prayers will not be hindered. There is a reason to believe, and then another verse I'm going to read in a minute. There's a reason to believe, guys, that if you feel like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, there's a reason. Because if you're dishonoring your bride, why would God tune in? Now, I don't know exactly what to make of this verse because God has been faithful to me in seasons where I have not been faithful by treating my wife the way I should, and I thank God for his faithfulness, but if we take God at his word here through Peter, what he's saying is, men, you really want to get whatever it is in life that you're trying to get to, and you really want God to help you out, then get right with him, and I say this to the single men living with a woman in this room, you really want God to bless your marriage one day, then put him first, put him first before you just ask him to bless sin, And men, if you'll do that too by treating your wives with love and mercy and kindness and tenderness and respect and honor, just watch God bless your life. Now here's what I wanna do as we close, okay? I'm gonna ask our communion servers to go ahead and leave the room, but we're not done yet, so don't put your stuff away and tune out. Sorry, communion servers, you're gonna have to go online and listen to this part. They're gonna go out and get communion prep for you because what you're gonna do is you're gonna take communion today and you're gonna take it like this. If you're married, you're gonna take it together. You're gonna hold hands. If your kids are here with you, that's fine. Bring them into the moment. You're a family. You're gonna take it together and you're gonna pray together. And men, this may be totally weird for you, you're gonna pray for your girlfriend or your bride. If you're single in this room, man, praise God, we're so glad you're here. Jesus was single. Paul was single. You are in great company. The prophet Elijah was single. There are good godly men and women who were single throughout the Bible. So I say to you, do not be discouraged. You have a groom, ladies. His name is Jesus. Men, you do too. That may be a little weird, but Jesus calls the church his bride. He is with you. So you take this communion and you commune with him. Now, here's what I want you to do during this communion time. I'm going to read the next four or five verses. And as I read these, it'll be up here. I just want you to tune in. And I'm going to ask right now, Holy Spirit, speak in this place. I want the Holy Spirit to tell you one thing, one thing you need to do with these verses as it relates to your marriage, your relationships, and in your own heart. I want the Holy Spirit to reveal that to you, and then I want you to commit to doing it. All right, let's read, and then I'll pray, and we'll take communion. Finally, all of you should be of one mind. Sympathize with each other. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tender-hearted and keep a humble attitude. 
Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people or your spouse insults you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do, and he will grant you his blessing. (laughs) For the scriptures say, if you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. Oh, Father. God, there's so much wisdom in this, these verses for us. God, I pray first for the men in this room, single, married, widow, doesn't matter. God, teach us to be faithful and strong. Teach us to lead strong and tender lives. God, teach us to treat the women in our care, our mothers, our daughters, our neighbors, our grandparents, and especially our wives, with strong, strong, but loving and patient care. God, teach us to protect spiritually and physically the people you've put in our influence. God, forgive us of our failures and our weaknesses in this area. Thank you for your grace and your mercy in the cross of Christ where our sin and failure has been crucified. And thank you for that same grace, that same mercy that gives us the strength to lead well in this area. And God, for the ladies in this room, married, single, widowers. God, we pray right now. God, we pray for them that you would help them to trust you, to do the right thing in each moment. Even if that means not making the decision they know is best or believe is best, even if that means not leading in the way that they really feel called, but God, they, they, they believe that the, the Bible has convicted them in some way or another, and they're gonna do it, God, because your word says to do it. And God, give them the strength not to be afraid to follow their husband's lead. And God, for ladies right now who are in a non-Christ-honoring home, help them to literally, God, help them to literally love and serve their husbands in this way that they might win them to you. We ask all this in Jesus' name.